Welcome to Honorverse Today, the Honor Harrington podcast brought to you by TPE Network. Let's be about it. Hello, Honorverse fans. Welcome once again to our next exciting episode of Honorverse Today. As always, I am joined by my very dear friends, Jim Arrowood and J.P. Harvey. How are both of you doing this fine day? I'm doing very well. Same here. I would be doing much better if I didn't have a big, massive cat stuck in my arms insisting on... uh, insisting on uh, belly rubs, but... Wait a minute. How many legs does that cat have? This cat only has two, but she's got all the attitude of six. Uh, only two? Two? Okay, four. Oh, 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 oh. Sorry, I'm thinking, I'm thinking true legs. Oh. True hands, hand feet. You know, it it gets confusing sometimes. Yeah. She actually likes to ride on my shoulders. (laughs) Uh which was a mistake I made when she was a kitten and fit in the palm of my hand. Now at roughly 12 pounds and as big as she is, she still tries to do it, which doesn't quite work out so well. (laughs) And you know, funny we should be talking about cats because tonight we will be talking about the second anthology, Worlds of Honor, if I believe, which is, I think, a very well-titled book. Uh, the, The anthology is about... As much about uh, the planets of Honor's home and adopted home as it is about the characters. All the major worlds are represented here. This, I know, is one of a lot of people's favorite anthologies, and it's easy to understand why. Uh, We've got five stories. All are important some way for the major mythos. Uh, Includes two from Weber and one by someone who's going to end up being a major collaborator. And yeah, there's one story that's mostly filler, but my opinion, and I'll come back to this a little more, I don't think it takes away from the collection as a whole. Mm. So now we're going to follow our regular, I'm not our regular, but our anthology format, which is a little bit different than the regular format, right? Correct. Okay. Uh, So with that said, let's Dive right in. I have a bad feeling this is going to be a longish one because of the number of stories we've got. Yeah. <laughs> so, JP, get us, uh-huh. get us started with some background information. All right. Well, as you said, second anthology in the Otterverse has five short stories. The first is called The Stray, authored by Linda Evans. Second one is What Price Dreams, authored by David Weber. Followed by Queen's Gambit, authored by Jane Lin- Linscold. Almost stumbled mm-hmm. over her name for no reason whatsoever. The Hard Way, authored by David Weber. And then the uh, last story is called Deckload Strike. And that one was written by Roland J. Green. The collection was published in January of 1999 by Bayon. In hardcover format, came out uh, about a year later. 2000 in paperback and like all the rest of these they're out there to be had that's kind of the overall background on the book we'll get into some specifics about each story as we go along yep hey and jp yeah 
uh, published in 1999. That's actually an important thing to note because Crown of Slaves is published in, I think, 2003, maybe 2004, but I think it's 2003. And there's a lot of setup for the future of the Honor Harrington series in this collection of short stories. I believe it. We should jump right into the first story, The Stray by Linda Evans. Uh, Jim, do you have a synopsis for us? Oh, yes. All right. On the planet Sphinx, while out with his bonded tree cat, Fisher, Dr. Scott McDallan is approached by a frantic and half-starved tree cat named True Stalker, who persuades him and Fisher to follow him into the forest. True Stalker leads them into a clearing where there is a crashed air car with three dead aboard. True Stalker's bonded human is one of the dead in the crash. Upon further investigation, McDallin sees that the forest is also damaged far worse than the crash could have caused. Realizing there is a nearby research lab owned by Bioneering, he thinks there may be a link between the lab and the damaged flora. McDallin is overwhelmed by the elements, and he, along with the two tree cats, barely make it back to civilization before he can put everything together. Finally, he returns to the forest and the crash site to investigate further when he and the cats encounter Dr. Muriel Ubel, a research biologist with Bioneering. As she holds McDallin at rifle point, she admits to being responsible for the disaster in the forest and that she sabotaged the air car to prevent her secret from being revealed. A struggle ensues with McDallin and Ubel trying to kill one another, and just when Ubel gets the drop on him, True Stalker moves in front of her shot and is killed, saving McDallin, who in turn shoots her, while Fisher also attacks at the same time. Well, there it is. So, JP, uh, how about some background on this one? Yeah, background. So, as mentioned, Linda Evans wrote this story. She's another known quantity within uh, Bayon, but it doesn't look like she's had a lot of content out there. Um, She's made a number of contributions to other anthologies like this one, although she does have a few novels out. It looks like there's another David Weber series she's done work on as well, uh, Hell's Gate, Multiverse Number 1 and Hell Hath No Fury, Multiverse Number 2. So that's kind of her credentials as they relate to uh, David Weber asking her to contribute to this anthology. And then if you want, I will roll right into the themes. Mm -hmm. Do it. Go for it. Okay, so out of this story, uh, obviously we did a big setup talking about tree cats, and they are central to the story here, and specifically talking about tree cat and human adoptions. This story documents what looks like is the second one, uh, the one that followed Stephanie Harrington's adoption. The strengths and weaknesses or abilities and inabilities of the communications between the adopted pair. Some of that starts to come out here as we watch um, these two cats, McDowell's partner, the cat paired with him, and then the stray try to communicate with him what they know. And of course, we really see the human limitation in understanding what the cat's trying to communicate. But the pairing is is relatively new as far as I could tell in the story. So he's learning. He's still learning about this. 
We see here uh, that, and we've seen hints of this before, it's not just an empathic bond, but potentially also telepathic. And we see the word appear here called telepathic to describe that dual nature of the pairing or the bond. And then finally, the tree cat moral code. We get a little more data on how the tree cats think and function as a community and what it's important to them or not. And in this case, it anchors to this murder that happens when the uh, scientists at this bioengineering site cause harm to the woods and then, or to the forest and then down this air car to try and cover the evidence. Those are, yeah, they've got a very simple word. What's that? Evildoers. Yeah. And they put it very simply evildoers. Yes. Yeah. So uh, those were the ones that I saw that stood out that had some relationship back to the broader storyline. If there are any others that I didn't call out, you guys, uh, please jump in. No, I, I think you caught one of the, the re- some of the really important part of the theme, and that's the development of tree cat culture. Yes. I so, like tree cat culture, actually. It's nice and simple, clean. <laughs> like celery. Yeah, so, I don't like celery. <laughs> then uh, let's roll into our impressions and discussions and quotes. And... Jim, we'll let you start that one. Fair enough. I found this story entertaining and engaging and well-written. It follows a logical sequence of events. I really enjoyed the new information on the tree cats. Uh, It was interesting to find that they use tools. I didn't catch that if it had been mentioned before, uh, which is a further indication of their advanced intelligence. There was a large section of the tale devoted to the bonding between Fisher and McDowell, included as a flashback. Uh, I'm not sure if this was necessary or not to the story, but it was intriguing that the cat was able to figure out what McDowell needed to keep him alive, which is a huge indication of their intuition and ability to understand humans better. Uh, One other thing I enjoyed was uh, the speculations on how cats perceive language of humans. It was called mouth noises, and I'm wondering if cats will gain the ability to truly understand human language. I suspect humans will never be able to understand what the cats vocalize beyond uh, receiving impressions of emotional content. Bleak. Yeah. It's uh, pretty much the same as it is with uh, our pets today, and uh, I have no quotes. One one thing to mention, Jim, with what you said... um... What what's interesting is the cats, tree cats. You know, we we were we, people, humans tended to wonder if tree cats were sentient because the cats can't talk. The flip side of it is tree cats were wondering if humans were sentient because they talk because too much. we're mind blind. <laughs> no, because we talk too much. <laughs> <laughs> All those mouth noises. Yeah. But your comments that yeah, but, but but your comments that just made me think of that. <laughs> That's cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna send it over to JP. All right. Awesome. Uh, for me, this story felt like a David Weber story. It makes me assume that that's why he invited her to contribute to the anthology. It was very readable. Nothing about mm-hmm. it stood out to me as a disconnect between what we've already seen in the Honorverse from David's pen and the content we see here from Linda's. thought it was interesting that Scott McDowell and Stephanie share a common understanding of an apparent burden placed on the human in a pairing or bonding or adoption. 
And that's the protectiveness of that bond and the associated secrecy. He, he really seems to have a burden like Stephanie did to not explain or tell people what exactly it is that he feels or sees or perceives as he relates to the cat. I didn't see this coming at all, and that is a company called Manpower Unlimited, which provides cloned and bioengineered human slave labor to corporate colonies looking for environmentally adaptive workforces they wouldn't have to pay for working in bad conditions. Uh, This was the most significant part of the story for me, even though it was just a mention, frankly. I have to believe there's more about that to come. And in uh, my sci-fi mind, it reminded me, was reminiscent of uh, the storyline of the replicants in Blade Runner and you know why they were created and how they were used and ultimately why the replicants began to rebel. Why do I feel like nothing good can come from this? Mm. And with that, <laughs> over to you, Raul. <laughs> oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, JP. I am going to make it an effort to avoid spoilers uh and I, by the way mention blade runner you could you could apply this this dread i have to what we see in the alien franchise as well where you <laughs> see a similar use and abuse of artificial life forms but yep well yeah. okay i'm gonna start off the biggest disappointment for me in this story is that this is the only honor story written by linda evans Oh, I totally agree. She really writes Honorverse well, and she writes the Tree Cats particularly well. And I, I really, really wish we could have had some more from her. I'll tell you what, th- this story flows stylistically right into the next one, which was written by Weber himself. And you can't really tell that there's a break in the authorship. As both of you have said, we get some real insight into the bonding between human and tree cat. We learn a little bit more that it seems there is some latent telepathy, genetically at least, involved in humanity. We, we kind of got a feel for that with uh, Honor herself and her bond with Nimitz. Uh, we see that more with uh, Scott and uh, Fisher. So it's a little bit more implied. Uh, we'll, we'll get some more hints regarding that in the next story, in fact. From the story itself, the only kind of weak spot I found for me was the use of horses in the final confrontation. You got to keep in mind, Sphinx is a heavy gravity world, 1.35 times Earth norm gravity, which has a pretty hefty impact on weights. Now, the flip side is, you know, there's a lot of bioengineering involved as far as adapting animals to heavy gravity. So I'm my presumption is fine. Same thing happened with horses. No big deal. But as far as I know, this is the only reference to a horse, not an honorverse, because of we'll eventually hit a planet called Montana, and you can guess about that. But uh, this is the only mention of uh, horses on Sphinx that I'm aware of. This is an extremely important story in the honorverse, both for the prequels and for the main story. In fact, it's so important that what I'd really like to know is how much collaboration went into it between uh, Linda Evans and David Weber. In fact, the very next story, What Price Dreams, it is making references 
back to this story. As far as the prequels are concerned, uh, th- those would be the Stephanie Harrington uh, stories. Scott and Irina McDallin are very important. Fisher that we introduce is important. Carl Zervonik and his family are extremely important characters in the Star Kingdom books. And they're go- going to be, all of those are going to continue to be very, very closely associated with Stephanie Harrington. On the flip side, in the present, JP, you mentioned Manpower Inc. Actually, it ends up being clarified, the name clarified as Manpower Incorporated. Mesa and the genetic slave trade. You thought they were important. Well, they're, they're sort of central to the entire second half of the Honorverse story. Wow. That's why I mentioned Crown of Slaves, which is not published until like 2003 or 2004. This book precedes that by, what, three or four years? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. good catch. Yep. That, that was a really good catch. And in fact, I have to, it, it's so important that I did pull out a quote for the short story. And since you mentioned manpower and I mentioned manpower, it turns out to be the uh, right one. This is talking about a line in from the final confrontation where Scott's trying to buy some time. And this is uh, our villainous talking. I've got three separate biochemical firms bidding for the rights to my research, but with the fines Manticore is going to levy, I'll have to take it to Mesa if I want to make any damn profit at all, thanks to that stinking tree cats. Mesa, home of Manpower Unlimited, which provided clone and bioengineered human slave labor to corporate colonies looking for environmentally adaptive workforces they wouldn't have to pay for working in harrowing conditions. Any civilized star systems shunned Mesa firms for the monstrosities they were. That Mariel Ubel was running straight for Mesa's biomedical firms was not surprising. It merely confirmed the depths of her grasping, cold-blooded nature. What are the Masons going to do with you, Discovery Scott bit out angrily? Turn it into the next war's bioweapon? Uh, yeah. Great quote. Great, great quote. Yeah. So, JP, you got exactly what you were supposed to get out of this story. And I think that was about the entire mentioning of this whole thing. Correct. Was that little passage. All right. Yep. Yeah. And this is our first mention of it. So our ratings, uh, just to remind everybody, uh, we rate these stories thumbs up, thumbs down, or neutral individually. And we uh, reserve a rating for the volume at the end. Uh, I gave it a thumbs up. I thought it was good. I gave it a thumbs up as well. And this got a very solid uh, thumb up for me too. This is What Price Dreams by David Weber. Princess Adrienne, heir to the throne of the Star Kingdom of Manticore, becomes increasingly estranged from her father, King Roger II, as he grieves over the death of Adrienne's mother. As a result, she decides to go on a state visit to Sphinx against Roger's will. What Adrian doesn't know is that there is a plot against her life being perpetrated by a pair of assassins, one of which has the ability to psych-adjust others into doing his will. Soon after her arrival, Adrienne is adopted by a tree cat named Seeker of Dreams. Later, at a soccer match, the assassination plot is set in motion. A man with a pistol moves in for the kill. But Seeker of Dreams and other tree cats sense his uh, intentions and thwart the attempt. 
It is also discovered that the man is wearing an explosive device should he need to conceal his mind alterations. During the struggle, Alvin Tudev injures Adrienne when he knocks her to the ground while protecting her. While recovering in the hospital, Adrienne receives a message from her father appealing to her to come home so they can work to patch up their relationship as father and daughter. He further tells her that because of the tree cat's actions, regulations and laws concerning them will be made more in their favor. Well, there it is. And I'll just hand it off to JP for the uh, background information and themes. Awesome. All right. This one was written by David Weber himself, as you heard. So nothing more to say about that. I couldn't tell when the story took place from within the story itself, but it seems to be well after Stephanie Harrington lived. Um, there'll be some dates here to follow that could help uh, bracket it in. And there are a lot of references to her in the story. We see the adoption of Crown Princess Adrienne by a tree cat. Her father is King Roger II, who, according to various fan sites, was the seventh reigning monarch of the Star Kingdom. And that would put then this story somewhere between 1642 and 1669 PD. For context, Roger I was the first king of the Star Kingdom. Here we see Roger II, and then Roger III will appear in another story in this anthology. And then on to the themes. Uh, The tree cat human adoption theme is here very, very strongly. The sentient and protected status of tree cats and Stephanie Harrington's role in it uh, is amplified here more than we saw in the story about Stephanie's adoption in the first anthology. And then uh, political assassinations are a thing, and we're seeing that go on here. Uh, in this case, Adrian's mother, uh, Jim, you mentioned they, you know, uh, Adrian was mourning the loss of her mom and such. Her mother was assassinated, uh, and that's an important fact in defining the relationship between Adrian and her father, King Roger. Then there's the intended assassination of Adrian herself in the story and the tree cat's role in preventing it. And with yeah, that. Yeah, on the dating, JP? Uh huh. On the date, on the dating, um, yes. This is it's this story is like a hundred and thirty years or so after the first after Stephanie adopts. So figure this is several decades after Stephanie has passed away. Right, right. That makes some sense the way they talk about her. Yeah, near enough to be near enough to be a fresh memory, far enough away to be. Uh, a historical uh, legend. Yeah. You know, and it's funny, these you had mentioned this, Raul, this story following the previous and how well Linda wrote that other story, this could have been, you know, a flash forward chapter break in a bigger book, um, a bigger single story, not an anthology. It was kind of neat to see this, this follow uh, Linda Evans' story this way. Mm-hmm. But with that, how about uh, let's get into our impressions and our discussion about about this one. And that would be you, Jim. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I'll okay. I'll, I'll I'll be the lead off guy from now on. Okay. Uh, <laughs> whatever. I gotta have some guy. Somebody's gotta go first. All right. So yeah, a great story and a plot against the royal is always an intriguing story. But for one so young. 
it made it even more intense. Uh, the technique of psych adjustment is an intent is an interesting one. I have a funny feeling we haven't seen the end of the use of adjustments in future stories. One of the most satisfying scenes in the stories was when the cats went after Thoreau as uh, he tried to make his escape. I'll also add my thanks to Murray the Explainer for his abundant wealth of information in this story. And <laughs> I do have I do have a quote, if I can get my computer screen to scroll. There we go. Henry Thoreau stood paralyzed as 14 silken-coated arboreals glared down at him, lashing their tails while ivory claws kneaded in and out of the tree bark. There was nothing cute or cuddly about them, and he felt the bright, angry intelligence behind their unflinching eyes as they pinned him with their green glare. They know, he thought, the little bastards know, I had something to do with what just went down. But how? How could they know? Unless, and then he had it, they were empaths and his emotions might as well have been screaming his guilt at the top of his lungs, as far as they were concerned, but they were the only ones who knew. If he got away, there would be no way they could pass that information on to anyone else. All he had to do was get away. He swallowed again, and then began to back slowly away. He'd gotten perhaps three meters when a needle-fanged tide of tree cats came flooding out of the trees. <laughs> Enough said. <Excellent. laughs> Enough said. <laughs> that is an absolutely excellent quote, Jim, and I'll let you know why when we hit my uh, summer. Okay, so, all right, well, let's turn it over to JP. JP, your turn, my friend. Okay, I like this story as well, especially with it following the story about the other story about tree cat adoptions, Linda, Linda's story as with the first story in the anthology, there was a nugget of info here that I think has to be much more significant than the main story. And Jim, you pointed that out. It's this thing called psych adjustment. We get just enough about it to show us how morally messy it is and what can happen when this kind of treatment is used for malicious purposes. Another very interesting thing uh, Stephanie Harrington is referred to as Dame Stephanie twice in the story, and also Lady Stephanie once. Uh, I'm not an expert on the uh, legalese associated with titles, but it sounds like she was made royalty of some sort. The story also reveals it appears that she was offered a peerage but turned it down uh, in spite of the fact that we see Lady and Dame used for her. Again, not really sure how it works, but the emphasis on honor is that she had a proud commoner uh, heritage, a yeoman heritage, as they say. That may be so, but nobility apparently was already there in her bloodline. Caught that as, uh, I guess, the, those two interesting little nuggets that I, I think we might see more of. One, the psych adjustment, and then two, that Stephanie Harrington you know, had a brush with royalty at least in terms of her, her own self. And with that, how about, uh, let's roll to you, Raul. All right. Uh, just, uh, keep in mind the star kingdom has the concept of something called life titles, which means that, uh, that they can stick a title on you of, 
you know, at least maybe a knighthood or something like that, that, uh, or, or even some other title, basically that title expires when you die. It doesn't pass on to your children. Um, we'll find out a little bit more about that, uh, as we go along through the story. Uh, basically she couldn't escape it, but, uh, she was, Stephanie was able to, as she would think of it, limit the damage. Right. So, so we'll, we'll, we'll keep it to that. Uh, we'll see a little bit more about the psych adjusting, uh, in the future, but more important than that is something that isn't psych adjusting that this kind of lays a groundwork for. And that's all I'm going to say on that regard, but yeah, you guys are right. Uh, this is definitely amazing story number two. And especially if you're another tree cat fan, uh, like I am. In fact, this story almost feels like it could have been wit. It maybe it was written by Weber himself. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Which is my clever way of pointing out the way the flow from that first short story just goes right into this one. And JP, your description of a jump ahead really does fit very well. Interesting. The first adoption of a Winton is an accident, and. We can be pretty certain, though, that there wasn't much of an accident involved going forward. And frankly, both sides of the equation, meaning the Wintons and the Tree Cats, have definitely benefited from it. I, I think once they figured out who the Wintons were, there was definitely an effort on in, in the Tree Cat community to make sure we got an adoption as often as possible. The father-daughter kism was really kind of poignant for me. It just was saddening. And the other sad thing that gets made clear out of this is the price that tree cats pay in adopting. Basically, they're going to lose a half to a third of their life, depending on when they adopt, because most tree cats will suicide after their bond bonded partner dies. And that's both with humans and with a mated pair. Uh, so all I can say is thank God it's not going to be much longer until Prolong makes uh, its appearance and kind of equalizes the lifespans a bit. You know, it was one way of describing this story for me was comfortable. Even the action sequence didn't feel like it was rushed. It had a, There's times you just want a wonderful story told that just kind of speaks with you without leaving you on the edge of your seat with an adrenaline rush. This was that kind of really sit back and enjoy type of story uh, like that. Uh, there is one thing that this story makes me kind of wonder. How in the world did the great tree cat conspiracy manage to hold as long as it did until honor's time? M- regard, meaning uh, the, the reference, uh, reference to just how intelligent they are. Because let's face it. As far as I'm concerned, it's like they seem to have already given themselves away. Maybe it's the adoption to the Wintons that is helping to uh, hide it. Maybe it's the fact that we're over on Sphinx itself. So, you know, as far as I'm it's like, yeah, okay, I, 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 I can buy it. It's not a question of whether it's believable or not. And I'm thinking about it. Yeah, with the Wintons involved, uh, they're going to be conspirators and keeping the fact that tree cats are human level sentient uh, under wraps. They just haven't gotten the technology yet. Quotes. Okay, Jim, 
Your quote was so good that you stole it from me. <laughs> <laughs> but I had a small piece ahead of it that, that th- th- there was some narrative in between, but I'm going to add that small piece. Okay. But we are not mind blind, Parsifal said, and do not afflict his ears. Spread out, brothers, he commanded. It may be that the evildoer responsible for this thing is nowhere near, that he has no need or desire to witness the doing of his plans, but it is also possible that he is near at hand. Seek him, and if you find him, summon us. Perhaps there was a grim, vengeful anticipation in Donatus' mind voice. We can delay his steps until our humans arrive to ask him how his day has been. (laughs) A little narrative ensues, and then we hit your quote, (laughs) which would have been the second half of mine. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. (laughs) <laughs> but this was the set. The, 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 I included that in mind because okay, that the setup was just too good to pass. <laughs> okay, the cats have a sense of humor. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, they have Nimitz to. isn't unique. They have to. Oh. In fact, I was pointed out by one of our uh, listeners that I accidentally slipped in, and instead of uh, instead of calling uh, Stephanie's tree cat, climb swiftly. I called him by I called him by Nimitz's tree cat name, which was Laugh Sprightly. Oh, uh, so we weren't supposed yeah, to find he, that out for a while now, were we? It's not terribly. Much, it's not exactly what you would call a spoiler. Oh, okay. All right, fair enough. Because I'd hate so ratings. I'd hate to have to come down there. <laughs> come down there and open up a janitor and a drum full of whoop ass on you. Have you? <laughs> <laughs> I think I, 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 I'm safe on that. Okay. One. All right. Well, uh, as I said, I really enjoyed it a lot and, uh, felt very comfortable in, in the, uh, honorverse with this story. I gave it a thumbs up. Yeah. Thumbs up JP, for me too. That's three thumbs up. Even though I only have two thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh my goodness. Well, moving right along. Hey, yeah, let's move along. <laughs> <laughs> Our next story is Queen's Gambit by Jane Linskold. King Roger III of Manticore and his queen are spending some time practicing acrobatic moves on the Indigo Salt Flats. Suddenly, an apparent malfunction of his ski causes a fatal crash. As Elizabeth III watches the video of the crash, she comes to the conclusion that it was no accident and that her father has been assassinated. The entire star nation mourns the death of their beloved king. Elizabeth asks her future husband and scientist, Justin Zier, to investigate the crash and learn whatever he can. Because of her young age, a crown council discusses how to go about appointing a regent for her. At the same time, a cabal of conspirators against the king gathered by Lord Kemeny meet to discuss how they might gain control over the new queen. Their conclusion is to have Padrick Dover kill Justin and wed the queen himself. After Elizabeth's official coronation, Justin heads to the Salt Flats to begin his secret investigation when he runs into Daniel Chu, a member of the security ministry who is also performing an investigation. The two agree to investigate the assassination together. A decision is made to appoint Lord Wunt as the Queen's regent as a ploy. The family is fairly sure 
the House of Lords will not approve his appointment, and Elizabeth will then be able to choose her actual regent with more ease. Further, she was worried about Roger's tree cat, Monroe, who is looking ill. It is common for cats to suicide soon after the death of their chosen partners. As expected, want is not approved, and Elizabeth then appoints her aunt, Lady Catron, as regent. Meanwhile, Justin and Chu look into those who may have had an opportunity to sabotage the king's equipment. Patrick Dover's name floats to the top, and Justin decides to talk to him. Justin and Dover meet in a private chamber where Monroe is also present. After a short time, Dover decides to kill Justin right away, but Monroe senses Dover's intentions and attacks him to protect Justin. Chu arrives on the scene and intends to arrest Dover, but the cat realizes that Dover was responsible for the king's death and rips his throat out with his claws. Not long after, Jean Maru, a member of the Cabal, overhears two of the other members talking and realizes they are spies for the People's Republic of Haven. She rushes to the Queen to confess her actions and exposes the other members of the Cabal. Elizabeth summons all the members to the royal court, where she informs them of her knowledge of their treason and that Dover is dead. She offers to let them live if they all agree to withdraw from public life in exile. While she would have rather had them all executed, she was advised that this would set up conditions for war with the peeps before they were ready for it. The possibility of duels with the conspirators was also discussed but summarily rejected. All except Elizabeth's ultimatum to go their separate ways. Elizabeth orders the records of the proceedings to be sealed until 100 years after her death. They consider sending Monroe back to Sphinx, but he is recovering after bonding with Justin. Lord Dimitri Young, the Earl of North Hollow, calls members of the Cabal together and informs them he knows about their little band, and he informs them that if they try to revive their careers, they will be exposed for the traitors they are. He continues to support the military buildup against Haven. The appointment of Lady Catron as regent is confirmed, and the family enjoys dinner together in celebration of uh, new beginnings and the reign of Elizabeth III. Well, there it is. All right. Yeah. Background. So this one was written by Jane Linskold, as we mentioned. She is a prolific science fiction and fantasy author, and um, I'll call her a staple in the Honorverse anthologies. This was her first of four short story contributions to the Honorverse, the other three being The Promised Land, found in the service of the sword, which is the fourth anthology, Ruthless, found in In Fire Forged, which is the fifth anthology, and then most recently, Deception on Griffin in What Price Victory, which was just published in the past year. This story past takes few months, place actually. Not, yes. Yeah. As a matter of fact, like just it's, came out. In February, it's the one book I haven't had a chance to read yet. So this this story takes place not long after Honor and her friend Mike Henke graduate from the academy, and both are relatively junior officers, 
we get some great insight in this story into Mike's family, which is pretty cool. You know, we get hints of Honor's relationship to her and the family in the main storyline, but we got a, a lot more here. An interesting nugget of info about Jane, uh, the author of the story. She was a dear friend with another powerhouse science fiction and fantasy author, a fellow named Roger Zelaney. Zelaney Yay, was the one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, he is the recipient of six Hugos, three Nebulas, two Locus Awards, and those are just to name a few. The list is pretty significant. Um, Jane and Roger started their relationship as pen pals. She ended up moving in with him and taking care of him as he was dying of cancer. And based on her own biography, she was a significant, or sorry, he was a significant mentor in developing in her the art and the craft of writing. Before he died, in fact, he asked her to complete two of his novels that were unfinished. Um, At that time, one is called Donner Jack and the other is called Lord Demon. Definitely high praise for a fellow author to get that kind of request. While Mm -hmm. Zelaney never wrote a story within the Honorverse, perhaps he's a silent contributor through through Jane, through this story and the other ones that she wrote. So you Zelaney fans... He died ahead, way bro. too young. Zelazny died way too young. And if you haven't read The Chronicles of Amber, you are horribly cheating yourself, especially the original first five uh, books. Sorry, I, so I, get, I just had to cut. Oh, no, that it's in. okay. Uh, recommend, recommendations that come from reading good stuff that are recommendations for other good stuff is, well, good stuff, right? Yeah, um, he, he, so he themes, was absolutely amazing. We got two themes here. Uh, once again, political assassinations. And um, rights as they are practically applied to a monarch. And I'll have more to say about that when I offer my impressions of the story. Mm-hmm. And with that, unless you fellows have a few other themes, any other themes you want to add in, let's roll over to Jim. Fair enough. To cover uh, your impressions, good sir, of of this story yeah this one story was worth the price of the entire book and i'm saying that before i read the next two stories okay everything about this story was amazing first i love the appearances we've got of elizabeth III so far in the series but this look into her young life and her rise to power made her a real character instead of just a figurehead This tale was full of emotional content, great characters on both the good and evil side, and plenty of action, mystery, and intrigue. Throw in the political maneuvering, and it makes a one fine story. I wouldn't have minded reading an entire novel on this subject matter. This one shows what makes a great monarch and goes a long way to explaining why the Star Kingdom of Manticore is a great place to spend time. This was an example of masterful writing at its best. And uh, with all that said, I have no quotes. JP, balls in your court. This was my favorite story in the anthology. Jane did a great job of shaping the character of Queen Elizabeth III that we've grown to know and love in the main storyline as a more senior monarch. This was a phenomenal setup for the events we've already seen regarding Honor's decision to duel with Pavel Young and his hired assassin, the one who murdered Paul Tankersley. 
David Weber painted a great picture of how and why this was such a tough decision for honor and ultimately the consequences of the exercise of her rights as a noble. In practice, uh, not the same as the average citizen. We see a very similar situation here as the very young Queen Elizabeth struggles with the possibility, uh, possibility of her father's assassination and that that assassin could remain free and her right to challenge him, this assassin, to justice through, through their um, code duello, you know, through the right to duel. This ultimately informs the position we see the queen take when honor made the choices that she did early in uh, the main storybooks. So, Raul, how about you? Okay, this is our first story by Jane Linsgold, and this is someone we are going to be seeing a lot more of, not only in the short stories, but also as a collaborator in the Star Kingdom novels of, of Stephanie Harrington. This particular story is probably my favorite favorite contribution by Jane to the Honorverse. And the reason I say probably my favorite is Tree Cat Wars gives a little bit of uh, competition. And I'm going to have to be so darn careful in talking about this particular story because I have to avoid, uh, I have to avoid spoilers. And that's appreciated. We've known for some time that Elizabeth hates Haven, almost irrationally so. And she's long believed them responsible for her father's death. Those little bits have come out. Now we have the story of why and what actually happened, finally. Most of the shorts involving Manticore have had important information regarding the Honorverse and the relevant, well, not just Manticore, but Manticore and Sphinx, you know, directly. But they don't have quite the direct tie to the main story that this one does. Uh, this story actually takes place back in time, yes, but very recently back in time. And as a result of all the shorts that I've read, this story has the most direct contribution uh, into the main story arc. And, you know, I don't, one of the things that you don't realize until you really think about it and work it out, at the time of this story, Elizabeth is 16, Honor is 22 years old, and Mike is 23 years old. Uh, you don't really think about it. It doesn't really sink in that Honor and Michelle are both, you know, like six, seven years older than uh, Elizabeth III, which just kind of struck me as interesting. And it, you, you, you kind of see some of the aspects, uh, you know, a, as everyone, when you get older, uh, the, the age difference kind of diminishes. But you, you can see some of the dynamics between especially Honor and Elizabeth uh, going much further along in the, into the story. Uh, this story is also important because Jane really does most of the development of Michael Winton in the Honorverse. And while he's a secondary character, he is going to have some important influences in the future. And I agree with you guys. She wrote Elizabeth very, very well. We, we've seen bits and pieces of it already. Of, of already, we see how David is going to write Elizabeth in the future, and this is an absolutely wonderful tie-in. The one weakness for me in this story, and unfortunately, it's actually enough to cost a little bit of my rating, 
is that too often some of her dialogue just feels a little bit stilted and not quite natural. I notice it mostly in Elizabeth because, well, I, I've read all of the material th- through it. But you see it somewhat in Mike as well. You know, And those are where it's the most noticeable because those are the people we know best. This isn't unique to this particular story. This is one of the, if I if I had to grumble about one thing in uh, Linskold's writings, it's I, I I've seen this as a tendency. That said, she still comes up with some absolutely gems of character lines, and that makes up for a heck of a lot. And frankly, I'll take I, I'll I'll take the fact that she's not as strong as David writing dialogue. Any day because Jane Linskold tells one hell of a good story. And there's no better way of putting it than that. Characters, plot, pace, they are all developed very, very nicely. And this story is an absolute satisfying read that you have to do in one sitting because you won't be able to put it down. I do have two quotes. And in fact... Uh, the, these quotes really kind of highlight what I was saying about the gems in uh, Linskold's dialogue. The first one is she is talking to uh, Michelle Hinky. Mike is talking to Prince Michael, trying to convince him about the Navy. And she says, you won't know until you try, Mike says practically. My academy roommate was a dunce in math. Her astrogation was more intuitive than logical. But since she had promise in other areas, her instructors worked with her, and she graduated near the top of her class anyway. You're a prince of the House of Winton. They're going to have a real incentive to work with you. That, that's a side reference to honor. Remember, mm-hmm. if you yeah. remember, she sucks at math. Something I can relate to. And we find out, I guess it's in book four, when, when the duel takes place. Uh, no, book, maybe it's book three. Elizabeth was very, very protective of honor and her right to have the duel. And Elizabeth makes a comment near the end of the story. When she spoke, her voice was hoarse with unshed tears. I most sincerely hope that I am never forced to refuse any of my subjects the choice you have taken from me today. I never realized that the queen would be less protected by the laws than the rest of her subjects. Catron Winton Hinky touched her arm. Why do you think Roger so enjoyed dangerous sports? The monarch is given great power and privilege, but the cost is so high that no sane person would pay it. Why should I then? Elizabeth asked, her voice calm. Because you're a Winton, Catron answered, and we all understand our duty. Give me your advice then, the queen said, freeing one hand from Justin's grasp to blot away her eyes on how we should handle this mess. And then we get into the final wrap-up. That was a great quote. I almost pulled that one, so I'm glad that you had it. It just hits you in the feels. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So from there, let's go ahead and get uh, story ratings. Yeah, give the ratings. I wrote big time thumbs up. (laughs) I can agree with that. I I had a thumbs up here as well, and I said this is my favorite story in this anthology. Mm Mm-hmm. Even though I had to ding it a little bit for the uh, dialogue, this is still an easy thumb up for me. It, it's an amazing story. And it 
dang important one <laughs> for the uh, yeah for the art. Yeah, that's for sure. Okay, so the so let's move on. Yeah, the next story, uh, the hard way home by David Weber. On Griffin, a pair of siblings, Susan and Ranjit Hibson, go to the Athenai Holiday Resort for a ski trip. On their way, they notice a squadron of pinnaces operating over the mountains. While the pair tend to pick at each other, they are very close. The pinnace squadron is running evaluation trials on a new type of ship. Lieutenant Commander Honor Harrington is acting as executive officer to Captain Tamermain while on maneuvers. Honor witnesses a deadly avalanche that wipes out a ski lift and buries hundreds of victims under tons of snow. Susan and Ranjit are trapped with others in what is left of a lift car. Ranjit is severely injured, and it is up to Susan to work to see that she, her brother, and another passenger are rescued, but it doesn't look hopeful. Honor has knowledge of the dynamics of avalanches because of her upbringing on the planet Sphinx. Another officer, Anthony Arguski, 14th Baron of Novaya, Novaya, <laughs> 14th Baron of Novaya Tumen, second cousin to Pavel Young. Uh, he hated Honor for the beating she gave Young for his attempted rape. Uh, that one took charge of the rescue operations. Honor deemed him unable to do the job effectively. After an argument on where the best place for survivors to be found was, Tamermain uh, relieved Arguski and recalled him to the ship. Susan painstakingly digs her way to the surface. She, her brother, and another are saved. Her tenacity is rewarded with an appointment to the Royal Manticorn Marines Officer Candidate School, provided she can get her drooping grades up to standard. Well, there it is. All right. Background. So this is another gem by David Weber. Honor is a commander, lieutenant commander. Um, so the same rank as she was in On Basilisk Station. So we are now in time very close to the events um, that we read about in the first novel in the main story in the main series. Um, probably just within a few years of that. Uh, themes in here, officership. Um, we see what I'll call classic Honor Harrington and her ability to lead and think through now a young Commander Harrington, Lieutenant Commander Harrington. Uh, the chain of command is a theme here. And then what I will label professional dissent versus insubordination. And that we get glimpses of in terms of how honor versus, um, Anthony, right? Was that his name? Yeah. Uh, Agurski, how the tension between them and her attempts to push him in, you know, the right direction, a better direction after the avalanche. And she obviously perceives what she's doing one way, and he perceives it very differently. Of course, he's removed from the picture, as you mentioned, Jim. So those are the themes here. Mm -hmm. Let's roll into um, impressions. Yeah. Back to, back to you, Jim. Yep. Uh, another amazing story, and it has everything one could possibly want in a great story. 
Uh, I enjoyed Susan's struggle to save herself and the others, and her doing so against all odds. Uh, there was a lot of tension in this story. There was also a lot of tension between Honor and Arguski. Uh, I did see that coming when it was mentioned in the story he was related to Pavel Young. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, this is an excellent example of backstory that shouldn't be missed uh, to help get a complete picture of Honor's growth into the person she is in the other books. Uh, it was This was just plain fun to read. Uh, I don't have any quotes. Passing it on to you, JP. All right. This one, I will say, is my second favorite story in the anthology. And by the way, declaring a first and declaring a second favorite, that is, you know, I'm going to say right up front, is with very little room between these and all of the other stories, except for one. More on that later. Uh, this story flew by when I, I can't believe, I felt like I started reading it and suddenly it was over. Uh, just It just went fast. I love how we get to see the development of Honor's leadership style as a field grade officer. It was a great stage setter for on Basilisk Station. This commander, Anthony Agurski, 14th Baron of Novia Tumen, Novia Tumen. Um, I actually served under an officer who was just like this guy in many ways. Thankfully, it was only for a year. It was the, that year was the longest decade of my life. Big takeaway as it relates to the real guy in the real world, you may be, and this isn't exactly the situation with this uh, this Tuman character, uh, Gursky, um, but this is this was the guy that I that I knew and served with. You may be the smartest guy in the room, but if you're an ass, no one is going to pay attention to you, and as a result, the value of your smarts is lost. And that guy that I worked with could never figure that out. And he was a brilliant officer in terms of his intelligence. Hmm. But because he was not a, a good person, maybe I'll put it that way, all of the value of his, of his smarts and his expertise was lost on almost everybody because just nobody would give him the time of day. And I see this character, Agurski, that same way. He's, he's so arrogant and he's so... Um, rolled up with the confrontation between Honor and Pavel Young that if there were any good officer traits in this guy, they're lost because he's blinded by, you know, something he shouldn't be blinded by. And I'm I'm I don't know how really good of an officer he was if there was backstory on him, but uh he reminded me a lot of this fellow that I served with. Yeah, enough on that. Um <laughs> In a fictional and more funny context, <laughs> uh, about this is talking about Agurski, he reminds me of Major Malcolm Powers in the movie Heartbreak Ridge. And uh, for those who don't remember uh, that movie or maybe didn't see it, there is a there is a major who is in command of this um, this unit that um, Clint Eastwood is playing a character in. He's actually the main character of the story. This guy is a horrible commander, and late in the movie, after kind of all of the big stuff has happened, a more senior officer shows up talking to this major, Major Powers, who would love to take credit for the success that happened, but really it was Gunny Highway was, um, 
Clint Eastwood's character. It was really him and the subordinate troops that pulled the thing off. And this this senior officer understands that. And he turns to to Major Powers and he said something to the effect of, Major, what did you do before you came into the infantry? And Power says, I was in logistics, sir, or something like that. Supply or I and he goes, Were you good at it? And the major goes, Yes, sir. And then the senior officer goes, Well, maybe you ought to go back to it or something to that effect. <laughs> that is one of the greatest lines in that movie. Oh gosh. So that's that's probably a Gursky. Boy, that does sound like yes. You know, if somebody were to call him out, right? The captain who who pulled him back up to the ship. I could imagine that exchange going on with this guy. But anyway, enough, enough from me. How about you, Raul? Okay. Four fantastic stories in a row. Another one here by Weber himself. Again. Now, I know David has made comments about how he likes to tell long stories, but the guy can write a damn great short story as well. I usually don't like short stories. I, I, I've got a very high bar for short stories. And that means people like uh, Larry Niven, uh, Robert Howard, Fritz Lieber, Isaac Asimov, Robert Lynn Aspen. Those are the kind of people who can write short stories that I like. As far as I'm concerned, David Weber's in that kind of company. Susan Hipson is one of those fun characters that keeps coming in and out of honor's orbit as the story progresses. And in a way, it's really kind of great to see an origin story on her. E- even though she's only 12 years old right now, we-, we still see that feisty, competent Marine command, uh, the Marine that we will know in the main story, down to chomping on the sticks of gum. So I, I-, I love it. And along with this, we see a contemporary Star Kingdom with honor somewhat earlier in her career. And again, it's just kind of nice, especially with where we are now with her on hell. Um, It's kind of nice to see that contrast between a young but talented nobody and the great noble lady that we've seen her grow into. Uh, Sometimes seeing where she is in the present, it's kind of easy to forget the damage she's had along the way with uh, young and his cronies. Another thing I'd like to know is where David researched the buildup of an avalanche. Frankly, for me, the the way he described it was just downright unnerving. And I also particularly like the way, and he does this in general, keeps the proper perspective between the, shall we say, meager power of Homo sapien and the absolutely overwhelming power of nature. I, I really like the way, e- even with all of their technology, 2,000 years in the future, the absolute raw power that a planet has, much less a star, kind of never loses its ability to keep man, to keep humans humble. Now, I do have, for some reason they didn't get put in, I do have a couple of quotes here, and one of them just disappeared. Ah, oh, there it goes. I do have a couple of quotes one is where Novaya Tyman, uh, Novaya Cuman, however you pronounce it, sorry about that, uh, is basically screwing up the whole SAR operation. And Honor just uh, lets him, the first time at least, lets him uh, know who's in charge. And this one goes, 
XCOM, this is Captain Tamerlane. A deep, coldly furious voice said suddenly, and Novaya Timon's tirade chopped off in mid-syllable. Tamerlane was using the squadron ops net rather than using Broadsword's internal communications to speak to Novaya Timon. That meant every penis in the exercise could hear every word he was saying, and Honor felt her lips purse and silent whistle at the public slap in the face her skipper had just given the Baron. I am formally notifying you that the exercise has been scrubbed. Commander Harrington has my authorization to resume command of this ship's pinnaces immediately, since it would appear that she, unlike some people, actually has a clue about what to do with them now, not three hours from now. Do you have a problem with that, XCOM? Yeah, sets them in a place very, very nicely. Ouch. And then there was a... L- <laughs> yeah, JP? It was cool that Weber did that because, uh, you know, the default is you praise in public, you punish in private. But there are times when you need to knock somebody down now. A notch or five. Yes, because in this case, there were lives on the line. Did that major, I was going to ask you, uh, did that major ever get dressed down like that? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, He did. But when he retired from the Air Force, he had a hard time finding a job. Oh, your friend. I thought you were talking about the Heartbreak Ridge thing again. Sorry. Oh, gosh. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, no. It, not the heart. The real guy. The guy I knew. Burned enough bridges on active duty that when he retired, he found it difficult to ha. get hired by anybody that was already inside that that world. Okay. So, comes with a price. Great. And I, I've got to add one second, very short quote that was rather tongue-in-cheek toward the end. When uh, Harrington goes to visit Susan uh, in the hospital, uh, and there's this line, good, in that case, maybe you and I will serve together sometime. I'd, I, I'd like that, ma'am, Susan said, suddenly almost painfully shy. I'd like that a lot. Stranger things have happened, Harrington observed. That just hit me as funny. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Okay. Real, real story again, real quick. When I was an instructor at the Air Force Academy, I was a captain, and I am teaching seniors who are cadets who would act like any officer, you know, you get it, you get it beat into you for four years, right? Any officer is, you know, is godlike, and that has nothing to do with the fact that I grade them, they don't grade me, that kind of thing. In conversations with these these young men and women as they're preparing to be commissioned, I would remind them late in the year that when they make captain, Air Force 03, still a junior officer, when they make captain, I will still be a captain. And they could not fathom that. And a number of those kids I ran into, I say kids, you know, in quotes, <laughs> I ran into later when they were captains and I was still a captain and I reminded them. Did Remember when I told you? Because you'd get the sir, they, they'd see me, Cap, Captain Harvey, how are you, sir? And I'd say, I'm fine. And why are you calling me sir, Captain so-and-so? You know, we're, we're the same rank at that point. But So here's, here's this, you know, again, relatively young officer, lieutenant commander, who would be a major in the Air Force or the Army or the Marine Corps, you know, 04, uh-huh. um, talking to this youngster who, who it is conceivable that they could serve together someday, especially in the world of prolong oh. and those kinds of things. It's yep. neat. Ah, uh, great, great, great 
great insight there. And I had one last comment before we turn this over to uh, to uh, the, the ratings. Um, we've now had Sphinx, Manticore, and Griffin. Yeah. Aptly titled book, Worlds of Honor. Worlds of Honor. And from there, we can pass it on for ratings. All right. So I'll tell you what. I just wrote in another big time thumbs up. I mean, this is a great story. <laughs> <laughs> I'll add a, a big thumbs up to that too. Loved it. Like I said, it's my second favorite story in this book. Yep. Like I said, it's an easy thumbs up. And yeah. we, we've now seen why a lot of people call this the best of the anthologies. Mm. Yeah. We get we get four stories that could have all been penned by David Weber. Yeah. And there's reasons why yep. we know that's not the case, but these all flow that well. Mm-hmm. What a what a cool collection of stories. Yes. And that takes us to the last one, Jim. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> Deck Load Strike by Roland J. Green. Okay. The planet Sylvestria at the end of the Erewhon wormhole terminus is strategically significant to both Manticore and Haven. There are two warring factions on the planet. A war by proxy is being fought between the Canmore Republic backed by the Mantis, while Haven backs uh, the kingdom of Chu Chuibane, Chuiban, I can't even pronounce it. Okay, anyway, whatever. Major Shauna Ryder and a team of covert advisors conduct battle simulations. This is her story of trying to help the Canmorans uh, defend themselves using their own primitive equipment. Well, there it is. All right. Background. Roland J. Green. He is a, also a science fiction and fantasy author. Uh, this guy has nearly 30 books to his name just in one series alone. So he is a prolific uh, author. This was his only contribution to the Honorverse. The story appears to take place around the same time frame of the events in a short, victorious war, as the Havenites were becoming more aggressive and posturing themselves for a eventually a large-scale fight with Manticore. Uh, and related to that, uh, the themes would be military strategy, military allies, and then more specifically, in this case, as you mentioned, Jim, what is essentially a proxy war. Um, either to prevent or perhaps to fuel uh, the larger and more direct conflict. So stage setting for for a fight in the future, that doesn't mean you want to have that fight today. Um, so if we had more info on what was happening here, we could probably say, were they fighting but trying to delay the eventual bigger fight, or were they fighting in order to instigate that fight or set the stage for that fight in a more aggressive way? But the fact is there's a proxy war going on. Mm-hmm. And for you history buffs, you can look back at the the 40-plus years of Cold War and look at how the United States and the USSR operated as as severe enemies, never fighting directly and often fighting through proxies uh, all over the world. And with that, how about your impressions, Jim? First of all, I have a theme to add. I cannot believe... Ah. I cannot believe you overlooked this, Okay. I'm just going to put it this way. Do it. The, do it. The horizontal polka. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. 
goes I wish PG we had. Rating. Yeah. I, w- I wish we had the. I wish we still had our bell. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I can't. Yeah. Reach, we, you, I can't reach it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. I suppose I could put it clinically, but I thought. Yeah, I, I like the way you put all it. All right. So, all right. You know, I'm sorry, but try as I did, I couldn't get anything from this story. I couldn't get into it. I found Shauna a mildly interesting character, but I think there was way too much emphasis on her personal relationship with Fernando Chung. Uh, I was not entertained, nor was I engaged, and I didn't find a reason to care about anybody. Okay, perhaps this story might have some significance to future stories, but to me it was just a side story that wasn't bad, uh, just not as great as the story, the previous stories that we read here, and I certainly didn't have any quotes. <laughs> so over to you, JP. All right. <clears throat> well, with the four stories we just talked about behind me, I was pretty excited that none of them were duds. Um and then this one fell flat for me too. Uh, I didn't like this story at all. I, I felt like it gained I gained nothing from reading it. I lost time. I could have spent reading something else or even rereading one of the pretty amazing stories earlier in the book. Uh, there were probably some good nuggets of info here to bring some additional depth to our understanding of Haven. Um, but if so, they got lost for me in the story. Um, I won't reread it to find out either. So, uh, too bad, uh, I guess for somebody, not, not for me. Um, the only takeaway for me, it seems Mr. Green isn't familiar with real Marines or infantry in general. Uh, and this, this is, this is nitpicking a little bit, but it's the kind of thing that, that punches me in the face when I see this go on in stories. I've never heard of the term detrucking used to describe what I assume could only have been an attempt to say dismounting. And you're talking about, about soldiers or Marines, you know, getting, getting off of whatever system that they're mounted to amphibious vehicles or armored personnel carriers or whatever. It's called dismounting. It's not called detrucking. That kind of stuff tears me right out of a good story. And it, and it added a lot of dislike to what I don't think was a good story at all. It was the icing on the bad story cake. Um, just a little time spent doing a little bit of homework wouldn't have hurt. And uh, I, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm leaving that criticism uh, of the author essentially to what I read in this story. If the guy has the volume of work under his belt that he has. I gotta believe he's a pretty good writer. Uh, but if he got pulled in to this to help write a little piece of the honorverse. Uh, I, I think he was just outside of his element, but, uh, Raul, how about you? Well, I think at the beginning I said something about four great stories and one filler. Yeah. I I'm pretty confident that anyone who's actually read this anthology knew exactly which one I would be talking about. It is also the one that has the least connection and the most inconsistencies with the Honorverse continuity. Uh, what I found particularly confusing is the status of Erohan in the story. I, I'm pretty sure at this point in time, Erohan is a solid part of the Alliance. Much like a Grand Tour in the last collection, this story really just isn't a fit with the saga logically. Though, 
at least it pays a little more than the mere lip service, you know, to the lore than that last story did. Uh, for, for me, the clincher is this is one of those everyone dies stories. Uh, nothing against the author on this one, but I'm, I'm sorry, those stories just don't really appeal to me. I, I, I mean, I know a lot of people liked it, but I didn't care for Rogue One and the Star Wars mythos for the same reason, as well as for some of the kind of choppy, fragmented writing in it. If there's a point to it, I'm not going to complain, but this story, like the Rogue One movie, it really doesn't have a point in the greater story. Mm -hmm. And no quotes. Yeah. Well, I, for one, did enjoy Rogue One. So... <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> it, if a white, the, I, like I said, the big thing with me on there, the biggest thing was the everyone dies type of story. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I got that. All right, then. Well, as far as ratings are concerned, I didn't like it. I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. I gave it a neutral rating. I gave it a thumbs down. I didn't like it. JP, I'm with you on this one. Th thumbs down. Mm-hmm. And now, and now we have to cleanse our palates because we do want to rate the whole work, the whole the good the thing, whole anthology. The good thing I will say is, on a reread, you can just skip this story. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, the 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 anthology is long enough that with the first four stories, in fact, the first anthology was three shorts or novellas and the essay. And see, I don't so, think I can do that. I'm the guy that watches every single episode of Star Trek when I watch it. I, I, and I know what's coming up. I'm going to hate some, and I watch I know, them anyway. I know, <laughs> and I'm going to do the same thing. <laughs> but I, I'm just saying, if you wanted to, you could skip this one. Yeah, I don't it, do it's that. It's an easy skip. I don't do that. So uh, as far as rating the entire book itself, I didn't, I didn't give... Uh, the last story, a lot of weight. I gave it maybe a half a point. So I'm, I'm calling this a 4.5. Uh, I went with a 4.0. Okay. Which, which I guess you could argue was a good score for the first four and a big zero for the last one. I don't know. <laughs> <sighs> this story gets one of two scores, depending on my mood. Uh, th this last story definitely drops the rating down and the dial some some of the dialogue issues and i'm going to be honest some of some of it is because i've read so much of i've read all of the rest of the stuff i sometimes that can color me a little bit so i have to make a conscious effort not to i am in a very good mood especially in the discussion so i'm giving this one a 4.5 <laughs> all right well so what does that, that give us gives as an average us sir the overall between the three of us is 4.33. Okay. And repeating, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> I looked up on Goodreads and it was a, it, it's a 3.92 with 3,363 ratings. Amazon came in with a 4.6 with uh, 332 ratings. And uh, that's kind of how that shakes out. And you know something? So we're right in the middle. Yeah. And I, I also mentioned last time we did an anthology that, you know, the numbers for the anthologies for people who are rating them. Now, I don't know how, you know, what percentage of 
readers actually post a rating or something. But, you know, with other books having 24,000, 17,000, that and to only have 3,363 uh, ratings on Goodreads is, I'll tell you what, if you're a reader of Honor Harrington books and you're not looking at these anthologies, you're missing. You, yes. You're missing some. Yes, 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 yes. Some really juicy stuff, uh, especially. And important stuff. Yeah, especially in this volume with two outstanding stories and two others that are very, very good and uh, one that's not so good. But. <laughs> well, the next book, the next anthology, in fact, Jim, just going along with what you were saying there, it's it's got probably one of the most important short stories of the entire of the entire collection of anthology stories mm -hmm. a lot of people skip the sub skip the side material uh, i know sometimes because me hey i don't care for short stories in general uh, that's why i actually put them off for so long um a lot mm -hmm. of them you know they, they just want to focus on the main story without realizing just how much significance and influence these anthology stories have on that main arc and not just simply as background material. Mm -hmm. You're selling yourself short if you're not reading these very much. So yeah. Yeah. Go on back, get it and, and really enjoy those and enjoy how much it, they fit in and how, how they little short stories really expand the universe a lot. So, all right, so on our next very exciting episode, we will be reading Ashes of Victory, Honor Harrington, book number nine by David Weber. Back, We're going back to the main sequence now. And uh, shout-outs for tonight. I would like to shout-out to Hank Davis and his TPE network of fun and informative podcasts and thank him Absolutely. for his hosting. And so. as far as shout-outs go, Jim, uh, I'd also like to thank uh, both Conrad and Baz for their continued uh, inputs uh, from the email. And yes, I do get the email, folks, uh, if you... So please send the emails in. And also uh, thank you to uh, Rhonda, uh, who I've continued to have extended conversations with on Facebook, both in our in our uh, honorverse today page as well as on david weber's page and uh also mm -hmm. to steve bradley who's kicked up uh some com you know comments to us uh love yeah. the feedback gentlemen and ladies yeah well you know what you're you're not going to get away that easy because Rhonda tesh sent in a comment that says can't wait to hear y'all's tree cat name. Ah, I was hoping you would. <laughs> oh, yes. I saw that. Now, gentlemen, let's have it. It's time. One of our. What? One, I'm telling you, one of our listeners threw down <laughs> and you guys got to do it. Rhonda, I'm not going to forget you for this. <laughs> okay. So let's hear it. I have suggestions. Go ahead. I'll tell you what, Jake. JP obviously flies high and fast. <laughs> I was thinking maybe deep. Not fast, not him. fast and loose, huh? No, no. I'm uh 
I, I thought seriously, I thought hard on this one and tried to figure out, geez, how can I, how would I describe JP? Well, as an officer in the United States Air Force who loves to fly helicopters, what else do you say? Flies high and fast. I appreciate it. I would have said something like "eats too muchly" or something. <laughs> and you'll find that out for you. That that's actually a really appropriate name. Uh, wait, wait, just wait till you find out Honor Harrington's tree cat name. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now, Raul, down to you. Oh. Now make sure you make notes of this, JP, so you can put them in the show notes. Yeah, right, I, I'm. Down. There you go. By the now, way, for JP, I would have gone with uh, Deep Thought, but it has too much of a uh, Hitchhiker's Guide feel <laughs> or Jack Handy feel. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Probably for now, me, if you, they would call me something like Talks Muchly. Really? Never hmm. a problem getting me to talk. It's always a problem getting me to shut up. Okay. You going with that, or is Jim going to offer a- Talks for free, shuts up for a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> that was going to be your suggestion? No, that's that was a- uh, <laughs> No, that that's a- uh, oh. I'm just playing off what you have. Honest to goodness, Raul, um, I, I could not really come up with anything. <laughs> oh. He who shall not be named. Hey, David Weber, help us out here. Well, it took me. (laughs) You know, that's the guy that should assign the names. Yeah. No, it took me, it took me several days to come up with JPs. And, and, um, I was, as a matter of fact, I was thinking about it on the way home from work today and, you know, geez, what, what withdrawal? And there's so many things. I mean, uh, I'll tell you what. Rhonda, Some would call that a haunting, R- by the way. Rhonda, we have <laughs> we have my tree cat name. We have JP's. Uh, What's yours? Mine? Yeah. Sits on his butt, yeah. drinks coffee. <laughs> That's too many syllables. Oh, damn. How about grumps loudly? How about just drinks coffee? <laughs> How about says, get off my lawn. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, grumps loudly. No, I... I <laughs> sits on my ass and drinks coffee is a perfect description. I, 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 um, yeah, that, I don't know. But anyway, yeah, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give Raul a month, uh-huh. a whole month to come up with the right. ultimate name. For what? Your tree cat Yourself. name. What do you, what do you think we've been talking about? Are you, a, muchly. are you drinking he's, cough he's medicine or what? <laughs> Well, I'll throw this out there, not not a name for Raul, but we come up with these names, but if uh, if the man David Weber ever chimes in and wants to offer names in this regard, he gets to trump whatever we did. I'll, I'll, I'll accept that. I'll accept that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. For better or worse. Yeah, I, uh, I'll go along with it no matter what it is. There's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing any of y'all can call me that I ain't already heard or worse. <laughs> oh, get your grammar right there, Jim. It's not y'all. It's all y'all. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe down there where you're at, but but I'm one of those northern southerners. <laughs> Rouse the guy that says, let me write that down. Can I borrow y'all's pencil? Pencil, yeah. <laughs> yep, I I had a friend when I was in grade school that used to say it that way, a pencil. <laughs> There's somehow an L in the middle, pencil. Yeah. So, all right, well, let, I suppose. So, enough of that. I suppose, we, yeah, we should probably. All right, yeah. so thanks, thanks, uh, 
to our listener for um, prompting us to really give that some thought. Yeah. Thank you, Jim, for actually giving it some thought. That was that was pretty cool. Yeah, <laughs> I enjoy stuff like that. So sorry, I was in your head on your drive home. That's not so cool. Ah, no worries. No worries. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're we're all good friends here. We get along really well uh, in public. Uh, <laughs> we behave. <laughs> <laughs> we won't tell you what goes on behind the scenes. So at any rate, uh, I think we need to wrap this up. Yeah. So uh, I'm just gonna say good night. And JP, why don't you say good night? Good night, JP. Yes. Good night, everyone. Had a blast as always. <laughs> so long. Thank you for listening to Honorverse today. We welcome your feedback. Email us at honorverse at tpenetwork.com. We are a proud part of TPE Network. Visit us on the web at honorverse.net, on social media, or tpenetwork.com. You can subscribe to Honorverse today by visiting tpenetwork.com slash subscribe. Visit TPE Network for the very best in podcasting. Opinions expressed in the show are solely those of the hosts. They do not reflect the opinions or views of Bain Books, the authors, or TPE Network. Visit Bain.com for the best in science fiction. Many of their books are available from the Bain Free Library found at their site. Theme music is Honor and Sword by Zakar Valaha. Check his website found in the show notes for all your podcasting music needs. <laughs>